Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was David Bowie and Fantastic Voyage from his Lodger album from 1979. You're going to hear a lot of tracks here from 1979 and 1980 because this is the John Lennon 1980 playlist show because I've got music historian Tim English here, and he's got a fantastic new book out on John Lennon's 1980 playlist. Uh, Welcome, Tim. Hey, great to see you. Pleasure. And do you want to tell me about the concept of that book? Well, when you write a book, you really have to uh, love the topic because the type of books I do are all nonfiction. They all involve a lot of research. So if you were researching a topic like uh, farm prices or something like that, it would, and writing a book about it, it would be the worst job in the world because it would be uh, so much work, so much fact checking. But if you're researching a book where you're turned on by the topic, where you're, it's the type of book that you would want to read yourself that nobody had written, which is what I try to do, uh, then it's fun. So the research is fun, and it's fun to discover new things. Of course, it's a challenge for a writer to 
find some new, something new to say about John Lennon, somebody who's, mm. you know, countless books written about him. But I thought by looking at the music that he was listening to, uh, we could gain some insights into what was going on in his life that time. And in fact, quite a few of the songs or several of the songs he listened to actually impacted his life and some of the crucial decisions he made that year. So I thought it was, uh, I, I interact with a lot of uh, Beatle maniacs uh, online and inevitably they think that they've heard it all and they know it all. And I say, well, yeah, you may know some of it, but you don't know all of it. So even for those people, I hope to bring something new to the table. Yeah, there's a, a mix of artists and materials, some of which you probably recognise as connected with John, such as David Bowie, and the, their history goes back um, certainly to the mid-70s, and lots of sort of new wave acts that you wouldn't associate with John. Yeah, I was surprised. Uh, apparently he went to see Devo at uh, Max's Kansas City Club, even before they had their first album out. Uh, Mark Mothersbaugh tells the story of uh, after they were uh, outside the club after the show, <laughs> drunken John Lennon sticks his head in the window on recognizing Mother's Paw and starts singing the song uh, uh, Uncontrollable Urge. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he sort of picked up on the fact, apparently, and he's with Ian Hunter, not the Hoople. If this story is to believe, then why wouldn't it be? Uh, but uh, he was singing that Devo song and uh, he picked up on the fact that it was sort of similar with the yeah, yes, that she loves you. And if you listen to the, car, the guitar at the beginning, it's a little bit like uh, I want to hold your hand. So uh, he said that was quite a moment in his career to have a drunken John Lennon singing his song back to him on the streets of downtown New York. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was one case. Uh, the B-52s, uh, really one of the crucial songs in the book is John hears... Um, Rock Lobster at uh, a club in Hamilton, Bermuda in June, where he's down there for a month. And uh, he immediately picks up that they're sort of doing Yoko, as he said, which was true. Kate Pearson, one of the few people that really picked up on Yoko's early plastigonal band and solo albums. And she, that little scream she does in the, in whatever term you want to use, Rock Lobster, was really an imitation or a tribute to Yoko. And John picked up on that right away. And he was just so turned on by the fact that people were picking up on Yoko's music. He said, now's our time. You know, the world has finally caught up to what Plastic Ono Band was doing 10 years ago. Now's the time to come back. And uh, so uh, that was one of the factors that kind of compelled him into studio when he got back to the U.S. Uh, and recorded Double Fantasy. So for many of the tracks for the book, um, being able to find a reference where John's uh, mentioned the the album or the artist or, or the song. And I assume that's the case for David Bowie's album, Lodger? Yeah. You know, what I ha- had on that was he wrote a, a note to his assistant asking him to get a copy of Lodger. That was probably in 1979 uh, when it came out. Of course, uh, Lodger, Lodger the third of the Bowie so-called Berlin trilogy, even though Lodger was not recorded in Berlin, but an album that has really gone up in the estimation of many Bowie fans and critics through the years. It was in the U.S. especially, it wasn't particularly well received. It did better in the U.K., but now it's looked at as a really uh, important album and a very good album in Bowie's development. I was sort of surprised, I don't know if surprised is the word, but I was we mentioned that there were several connections between John and Bowie. And I really, in researching the book, I was surprised not surprised, but I guess I was surprised to find that Bowie kept turning up in the story of those years. John and Bowie actually were hanging out in uh, Hong Kong in 1977 
you look online, there's a picture of John and Bowie uh, hanging out with their arms around each other. And they were, you know, although John has supposedly, uh, you know, cooled out a little bit, they were, according to Bowie, they were conducting some very rock star like activities, like going out and get drunk and going to strip clubs in Hong Kong. And uh, that's just one case. And then John was very fond of uh, Bowie's song, Ashes to Ashes, which we might talk about. And uh, John had plans to see Bowie on Broadway uh, that fall of 1980. Bowie was appearing in uh, Bernard Pomerantz's play, The Elephant Man, which was a really challenging role because you're playing a physically disabled person, but you couldn't, you, there was no makeup to, to help the actor. You really had to do it all with your voice and your mannerisms. And Bowie pulled it off fabulously, according to everybody that saw him, including the New York critics. So John was very taken with that. He said, wow, I could never do what he did, you know, to go out there every night and do all the lines and everything. He kept up, kept close watch on everything Bowie was doing. Yeah, and there's a bit of a connection in relation to our next track because maybe a, a year or two later, David Bowie worked with Queen famously on Under Pressure. But the song here is a crazy little thing called Love, the Queen track. And um, in the book, you talk about the fact that that's got that 50s element but modernized for a new decade, which is something, again, that resonated with John. The 50s music that he grew up on, your Little Richard and Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly, was really a touchstone for John throughout his life. Uh, if you go back to the mid-70s, where I think he was getting kind of burned out and he wondered if he'd lost the creative muse, what does he do? He goes and records the rock and roll album with Phil Spector, famously ill-starred uh, project. But, you know, he would, he would return to that music, I think, to reconnect with his muse, because that's what really changed his life when he was 15, 16 years old. And so when he hears Queen's crazy little thing called Love, he's, he hears them doing Elvis Presley. John later said, he said, when I heard that song, which was the number one hit, I believe it was number one in the UK, it was number one in the US in early 1980. And he, he said, maybe this is my time again, you know, the music envi musical environment of 1980 is conducive to my type of music. Later in the fall, he heard uh, Donna Summers, this was after he'd recorded Double Fantasy, but he heard Donna Summer uh, doing her song, The Wanderer, and he picked up on that. He, he got all excited. He said, she's doing Elvis, she's doing Elvis. Do you hear that, you know? So um, I think drew a lot of inspiration from that early work. And uh, this bootleg tape from Double, Double Fantasy where they're jamming on a bunch of oldies, which I document in depth in the book. But, uh, he tells one of the session guys, he said, I'm a 50s guy, not a 60s guy. You know, that's my era, you know. So even all those years later, over 20 years later, he was still very much identifying with the music of his youth. And actually, you may be aware, uh, there's research now on people's brains that the music we hear when we're teenagers really imprints itself on our mind uh, for the rest of our life which nobody will be surprised to hear that. And of course you have all that drama going on with your first romance and all that stuff. And then you're hearing the songs and that you're really, uh, there are uh, uh, physiological reasons that that occurs. And it was certainly the case with John. Yeah. 
Next, we go to one of the more contemporary acts and a band that many people wouldn't associate with John Lennon, but again, certainly a, a track that actually sparked John Lennon's imagination and that being One Step Beyond by Madness, a bit of two-tone scar here. Yeah, yeah, he picked up on that song and uh, he didn't name the title, but he picked up on, we said, uh, don't do that, do this, you know, that's how we remembered the song. He, he mentioned, he also was a fan of uh, The Selector, which is another one of those fans too. John had been doing ska from way back, you know, he actually included a little ska section on the Beatles' I Call Your Name, which was actually one of the first songs John ever wrote when he was a teenager. But if you listen to that, there's a middle section where they're actually doing ska. Mm. And, you know, you hear that and you go, oh, yeah, well, Millie Small had My Boy Lollipop in 64. They were just copying that or picking up on that. No, they weren't. <laughs> they actually recorded that a couple months before uh, Millie Small had the hit with My Boy Lollipop, which was really the song that kind of put Jamaican music and ska on the map. So as I documented in the book, John was a fan of reggae uh, from way back. Well, that's 64. So he was picking up on Scott at that time. You know, he was actually doing some reggae in, himself in 1972 when he played the one-to-one shows. They kind of did a reggae version of Give Peace a Chance. Yoko's song, um, Sisters Oh Sisters, which is one of her better ones from the Sometime in New York City album. Uh, if you watch the one-to-one show or the clip of it online john goes reggae baby you know before they do uh yoko's song and he john was forever complaining that he couldn't get the american session musicians to play reggae properly that they just couldn't do it you actually hear a little bit of reggae even on mind games Mm -hmm. you know with the beat on that if you listen closely so john was always a fan of that music burning by bob marley and the whalers i don't want to say but possibly his all-time favorite album uh, certainly a favorite of his and uh, when John was recording the reggae-type song, uh, Borrowed Time, for Double Fantasy, he actually got the Marley song, Get Up, Stand Up, and played it for the musicians, you know, saying, listen to something beautiful. He says, I don't want you to exactly play like this, but you're getting the feel from this. So that's how much he, he loved Bob Marley and the Whalers music. Hey, you! Don't watch that! Watch this! This is the heavy, heavy monster sound! One step beyond!
And now we have one of the more prominent artists <laughs> and, and ties with John Lennon. And it's certainly in folklore that coming up by Paul McCartney alongside Rock Lobster was one of the touchstones for, for sparking John in, into the, the next creative birth before he was sadly killed. I assume that's the case then? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the creative engine room, if you will, of the Beatles was the songwriting competition between John and Paul. And they were constantly trying to top each other uh, to outdo each other, come up. And it was a friendly competition, but it was a competition. And they're by two separate accounts of two people that happened to be riding in a car with John in the spring of 1980. And uh, two different occurrences where Paul's song coming up came on the uh, radio. And each time they both people recall that John was very taken with the song and said, wow, that's pretty good. And almost seemed to be challenged by it, I guess we could say. That as long as Paul was doing what he thought was so-so work, you know, he could go on in his retirement but long but when Paul's doing great work and having uh, the live version of coming up went to number one in the U.S. you know then maybe John said I got to get back in the game here and it's interesting if you listen to one of the first songs uh, John recorded for Double Fantasy was a song called I Don't Want to Face It if you listen to that song and back to back with coming up sounds a little bit similar and even the words to the songs are similar uh, where they say, you say you want to do this, you say you don't do that, you know, and John, John seems like he's sort of responding to Paul in his uh, coming up in the song, I Don't Want to Face It. So, um, yeah, John, John preferred the uh, studio version, which was the hit in England, I believe, as opposed to the U.S., where the live in Glasgow version was the number one. Uh, John called the studio version the freaky deaky version. And... Uh, John must have gotten the kick out if he saw the video because Paul played, if you remember, Paul played all the different characters, mm. which was kind of a, because he played all the instruments on the McCartney 2 album, John thought he was kind of a control freak. So he's sort of having a laugh at himself, I think Paul was. But one of the things he's in, he's in his old Beatle uniform again. John, uh, you get to the fall, John is sort of starting to look like he did in 1965 too. If you look at the cover of my book, which is a great photo by uh, Alan Tannenbaum, which was taken about two weeks before he was killed. You know, he's, he's older and wiser, but he kind of looks the same way he did in 1965. So I think he was had come to accept uh, what he had done. He wasn't in competition with himself anymore. Uh, he just wanted to do music that reflected where he was at in 1980 and not be the person that he'd been 10 or 15 years earlier. So th- th- this was also a period was coming up into the, the late 70s and 1980 where John and Paul McCartney had, had reconciled really and, and were... I'm not sure they saw each other that frequently, but they they were kind of uh, on good terms. Yeah, I mean, um, that's so, sort of the story we hear now. And I hope it's true. I, I have no reason to think it's not. But if you look at some of the interviews uh, from 1980, uh, Paul and Linda McCartney were on Good Morning America, I think on Thanksgiving, which was a couple of weeks before uh, John was murdered. And he's, you can tell, tell there's some tension there where Paul says something like, well, they ask him about something snippy that John had said in the Playboy interview or the Newsweek interview. And they said, uh, you know, about Paul telling Paul not to bother coming around anymore. It's not like the old days when Paul would show up at the Dakota with his guitar. And Paul said, I don't know why he's that way. He says, um, you know, I, don't, I just don't say anything now because I don't know what's going to set him off. So, 
who knows? Maybe things were maybe according to Paul, but who should know? I mean, they did have a rapprochement and were getting along better. So um, that's good. I think it was sort of maybe like brothers where they like to criticize each other back and forth. But John said in that interview with uh, Robert Hilburn from the LA Times in, uh, in October, uh, uh, Hilburn asked him, was he surprised by coming up that it was such a good piece of work? And uh, he said, no, how can you be surprised by your own brother? And uh, in the limo on the night he was killed, he got a ride with the people that had done the interview with him from RKO. And Paul, of course, they wanted to ask him about what's going on with the other Beatles. And John said, you know, families argue, but but I love him. He's like a brother to me and I do anything for him. So, you know, I think maybe on the surface they would bicker sometimes, but deep down, I think they were, as, as they said, like brothers.
many of the artists are from are from Britain, the British artists, and some of them hadn't had hits over in the US. Kate Bush, uh, the next track being Babushka. I, th- I don't think at that time Kate Bush had had a, a significant US hit. Do you get an insight into how John was staying connected with the UK music scene? Yeah, he. I think he was very tuned in with what was going on in the UK. Probably from reading British charts, he would get Billboard magazine. There was a show on on the New York rock station at that time. John's friend, Scott Muni, would do a Things from England segment every Friday. So he could have picked up on it from there. Kate Bush, you're right, was not that well known uh, in the US at that time. It appeared on the show Saturday Night Live in the fall of maybe in December of 1978. But she was known. But uh, Wuthering Heights was not the hit in the U.S. that it was in the U.K. Around the time of the Double Fantasy Sessions, he asked somebody to get a copy of her song, Babushka. That would have been for an American to be requesting that at that time, unusual, I would say. But, of course, John was an unusual person. Kate Bush herself was a, a known as a fan of, of the Beatles and John Lennon. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, she she's, uh, had, had stunned Beatles songs from time to time in her early days and later. You know, when, one of the things that come out in the book is that John is a re, was a real artist with a capital A. You know, he was always creating art of one kind or another. Starting in school, he would do little doodles and cartoons and write silly things. And of course, he was a writer of prose. Uh, you know, he wrote, contributed to the uh, O'Calcutta play. I mean, he did. Uh, he was a sketch artist. You know, he did so many different things artistically. And Kate Bush reminds me of that type of person, just dedicated to their art. So uh, I think they had that in common.
And now we get to the Rolling Stones and Emotional Rescue, a little bit like David Bowie here in that um, I think John had a, certainly a, a relationship through the 70s with Mick Jagger. Yeah, uh, they were, they used to hang out uh, from time to time. There was an incident that uh, Ron Wood wrote about in his book, possibly understandably foggy, where they doing some drugs together. <laughs> and according to Woody, they also jammed uh, at Atlantic Studios in New York. If anybody ever finds that tape, that would be a great thing. But uh, John called Emotional Rescue a uh, beautiful song. Uh, he loved the song Miss You Too. He was, uh, he was reportedly heard that in the car and uh, had a great reaction to it, like crank it up. He loved that song as so many of us do. You know, he was contentious with the Stones from time to time. And his his uh, 1970 Rolling Stone interview, he was critical of making the Stones. I think he was competitive with them. He saw them and maybe Bob Dylan as the only people really who could hold a candle to the Beatles uh, musically. John, uh, from time to time, would sort of be critical uh, of the Stones. He recorded a tape in uh, September of 1979, sort of an odd tape, almost like an audio diary but in there he calls Mick Jagger. He's critical of everybody, basically, including Bob Dylan and uh, Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger. He calls them uh, he calls them company men, you know, meaning that they just did what the record company says, and you know they go along and get along. But uh, you could tell between the lines, John had a lot of respect uh, for Mick and the Stones. One interesting thing: uh, the photographer Ethan Russell was there uh, a couple weeks before John was killed in Central Park. They were filming video that was going to be on uh, the second single, which John had already decided was going to be Woman, which in fact was the second single after John was killed. Photographers doing the video wanted him to lip sync a little bit with the song Woman instead of just walking around the park. And John said, uh, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like Mick Jagger, 40 years old, prancing around in front of a video camera. (laughs) I, you know, he. I think he had a lot of respect for them, but uh, and he certainly kept an eye on what they were doing. But he he would take shots at the Stones, though too. He said, "Oh, it's gonna be because people would be critical of him for working with Yoko." He said, "In a few years in the future, nobody's gonna think twice of a man and wife working together. The guys are gonna look silly. Or people like the Stones, where they have the singer and then they have the other guys behind them, you know, trying to look tough, and you know that's gonna look foolish, you know, in the years to come." One of his last interviews, he was actually wearing, I believe it was a Some Girls t-shirt. So he, uh, I think he was a Stones fan underneath it all. Yeah, because uh, John famously played at the, the Stones Rock and Roll Circus all those years before. And bizarrely enough, there's a picture, and not many pictures of John from 1977 to uh, 79. Now many more have come out uh, in later years. But at the time, there were very few pictures of him. But one of the Public things he was interviewed at actually and had his picture taken was at the Ringling Brothers Circus at Madison Square Garden. And who's there but Mick Jagger? <laughs> so they were at two circuses together the one in 68 and the Rock and Roll Circus and the Real Circus uh, with Yoko and Sean in uh, 1977.
And you mentioned this track earlier, and we've covered this artist, David Bowie in Ashes to Ashes. So was this a song that John singled out in particular as a favourite of his? I think he saw the video and he said to someone, that's what I should be doing, which is really high praise <laughs> when you think about it. Of course, Ashes to Ashes um, was a it was the number one UK song that summer. Didn't do quite as well here, but it was, it was a big hit here as well. And just such an inventive song. Uh, the video possibly even more so, where they used that, I believe it's called the pink box technique. And if anybody remembers, it had this striking image of Bowie, I guess, looking like Pagliacci the clown or somebody. But he's walking with a, a little TV and he's got a bulldozer on the screen behind him. It was just really cool, uh, kind of surreal images that, of course, John picked up on and um, loved that type of stuff. Of course, John was, was involved with videos with Yoko uh, all through the years, too. But yeah, he definitely picked up on Ashes to Ashes. And uh, I, John used to watch The Tonight Show every night, according to some people. Uh, that was followed by another show called The Tomorrow Show, which John had actually appeared on in 1975, Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. But Bowie only did one live performance of uh, Ashes to Ashes in 1980, and that was in September on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The video was not available for many years, but recently it has been. and People can check it out online. So that's a performance that I'm pretty confident John saw. Bowie is sort of dressed like uh, James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause intentionally too, with the hair and the kind of the red, like a red leather jacket that he's wearing. And here it's a, it's a very cool but different version 
of Ashes to Ashes because it doesn't have any of the studio effects that the recorded version. Yeah, did. and um, I previously had uh, Earl Slick on on the podcast, obviously from David Bowie's band, and I'll have you. Earl told me about how he mysteriously was called for a session and was uh, managed to work out who he was uh, recording for by the process of elimination. I think they said, he said that he had met him before or yeah. one had met the other before and one didn't remember. And Earl Slick said, if I, believe me, if I met you, I would have, I would have remembered. But yeah, he did some uh, pretty cool guitar playing on those sessions. Yeah, like uh, I think he was on I'm Losing You, yeah. for example. Well, I get into the book where, uh, of course, Cheap Trick had come in to play on that song and uh, they apparently were looking for a little bit heavier sound and uh, the ver- that version, however, didn't come out until 18 years later on the anthology. But it is a great version with Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos. Apparently, they decided they didn't want Cheap Trick. Honestly, it doesn't. It is a little bit jarring, I guess, in the context of the album. So I can sort of see that where they wanted something a little more scaled down. But still, it's a great version. And that was sort of the thing that I think some of the critics of the album were thinking that it was too polished, maybe. Yes. 
So now we've got Elvis Costello's version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And I guess the lyrical theme of that song, even though I think it was a, ironic in a way, I think, was actually something that John resonated with John because it kind of had some themes that harked back to the peace and love. Yeah, he said, it's like Elvis Costello says, I still believe in peace, love and understanding. You're absolutely right. When Nick Lowe wrote the song in the, I guess, around 1973, 74, it was meant, ironically, it was meant to sort of making fun of the hippie guy that was very much out of fashion in those days. You know, you want so funny about peace, love, and understanding, man. You know, like that type of thing, you know. But as years went by and uh, the situation in the world has continued to uh, we need improvement, shall we say, uh, the song has lost its irony. And uh, Nicolo has been around to see that. But John definitely picked up on that song, saying what he still believed in. And he said, I'm still there. You know, I, that's what I believe in, too. And what is so funny about it anyway? <laughs> a great version of, of the song. Very direct, very driving, instantly accessible. And I guess as a, a music lover like John Lennon, that would have appealed to him. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, of course, Elvis Costello, years later, would sort of step into the John Lennon role. I mean, if there is such a thing in his songwriting partnership with Paul McCartney and everybody's like, well, this is a marriage made in heaven because, you know, he can be the, you know, the bitter to the sweet uh, sort of thing, just like John allegedly was in the Beatles. Of course, nothing is ever quite that simple. But they did come up with uh, some good songs together, arguably some of the best always come up with in you know in later years yeah i mean elvis costello was from liverpool correct yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly steeped in the beatles music you know certainly somebody that john was uh, aware of
And next we have another band that were kind of new wave or can be seen in, in that ilk, and that's uh, The Vapors and Turning Japanese. What's the tie there? I think it's a little tangential there, although you got to think that John, you know, having a Japanese family would have picked up on a song called Turning Japanese. And uh, being having been around at that time, that song was all over the radio in the U.S. at the time. But in researching this book, I mean, a lot of times, Jason, I try to use the songs as a jumping off point to bring out some other information. And uh, one of the reasons the Turning Japanese is in there is there was an article uh, that appeared in a magazine called the Soho News. It was sort of a competitor. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Village Voice, yeah, yeah. downtown New York, artsy-fartsy type of paper. And they were, Soho News was kind of a competitor to them. And they had a cover story on Yoko focusing only on Yoko. This is just a week or two after Double Fantasy had come out. And it was called, with the ironic title, Yoko Only. And that article, they pointed out that Yoko's song from Double Fantasy, Kiss, 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 had been, they, the DJ had been playing uh, Turning Japanese, and then he uh, plays Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. So John reads this article. He gets, he's just thrilled by it, that the hip cognoscente DJs in New York are playing Yoko's record. And I could never figure out what the heck are they doing back in the studio just two weeks after Double Fantasy release? Why was that? And I do provide the answer in the book. The answer was that John had heard that the DJ had played this song and said, we got to put a record out of Yoko's aimed directly at the dance market, aimed directly at these DJs. We're going to make her a star. We're going to get her number one. And this is how John spent the last week of his life in the studio. He was in the studio even before that paper hit the stands working on the, the uh, track that they had originally recorded back during the double fantasy sessions in the summer, walking on thin ice and uh, John and Jack Douglas uh, were overdubbed guitars on that very John's guitar playing on that is just phenomenal. Uh, he uh, was actually influenced in that, as I point out in the book by a really old song by uh, Sanford Clark uh, from the fifties, but he was just, thrilled that possibly Yoko was finally getting the recognition that uh, he thought she deserved. So that's how the Vapors uh, turned in Japanese got involved in, in the story. Was Walking on Thin Ice the track where it had the cover where with John Lennon's sort of bloodstained glasses? That was um, that was the album Season of Glass, which came out later. Uh, she actually recorded that uh, with all the Double Fantasy Sessions musicians and, uh, and Phil Spector again. It's funny the names that keep Popping up in the story, Bill Spector's producing the sessions, not uh, necessarily making a lot of friends among musicians <laughs> from the accounts that I've read of it. But uh, no, Walking at Thin Ice was on Thin Ice was issued as a standalone single, and Yoko wrote on the a sweet note on it, really uh, poignant, reflecting on how John was listening to that song all the weekend before he was before he was killed. And it, if you listen to it, it's kind of an eerie. Uh, song, you know, just the sort of like impending doom of walking on thin ice, a uh, very strange song to be from to be listening to that weekend. But I found several instances in 19, there are three other instances in 1980 where John either wrote a song or was playing on a song that uh, sort of had that same theme. There's, of course, his own song, Borrowed Time, uh, that was inspired by uh, Bob Marley's song, Hallelujah Time was actually not written by Marley, written by Gene Watt, the woman, wife of Bunny Whaler. He had another song called uh, Help Me to Help Myself. He talks about the angel of destruction 
Uh, he was after him. He tried to stay alive, but the angel of destruction was always by his side. Weird stuff. And uh, then he had another one called Gone from This Place. So he had four songs there that are, you kind of make blues just scratching your head a little bit. If, uh, even Yoko said about Help Me to Help Myself when that came out in 2000 as a bonus track on Double Fantasy. She said, yeah, maybe he had a inkling of something, you know, who knows, but it's there. It's, it's very strange.
now we get to uh, one of the few non-British tracks on the show and uh, the cars and touch and go. And I think we talked about when we were covering Queen here about that, that 50s feel, but updating it. And, uh, and touch and go has, has got a little bit of that. Yeah, John actually referenced both the cars touch and go and uh, Spring Street's Hungry Heart in his last interviews. He compared them to starting over in the sense that they both were sort of 50s inspired songs or harmonies. I think he meant 50s, early 60s, but with a modern veneer on them. And uh, John picked up on that in Touch and Go and actually sang a little bit of it like uh, Rick Ocasek did, the uh-uh-oh thing. The band is playing in 5-4 and the drums are in 4-4 or something like that. That's why it gets a little like weird stop-start thing going there in that song. Some of these songs just show that John knew what was going on at the radio, on the radio at the time, kept up with the modern scene, especially during 1980, as he was rejoining it, of course. And of course, he was looking at the charts every day to see how his album and song were doing.
next we have an artist who John cited a decade earlier as uh, having an influence on his early solo career. And here we are in the late 70s, 1980s, having an influence on what unfortunately was the, the, the end of his career. We've got uh, Dave Edmonds here crawling from the wreckage. Must have been a, a, a favourite of, of John's through the 70s, I assume. Yeah, John, and I believe it was in a Rolling Stone interview, said that Dave's cover of I Hear You Knocking was one of his favorite songs. He just loved it. In doing the research for this book, I have to say, Jason, one of the coolest things I found was that after the interview was over with RKO on the on the afternoon, uh, this last afternoon, people who were interviewing said that they were going to be doing something with Rockpile, of course, the band that Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe had. Uh, and John didn't actually pick up on the name Rockpile right away. But then they said, oh, Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. And John goes, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I love those guys. And he starts singing a little bit of Crawling from the Wreckage. And I got to say, which was written by Graham Parker, you probably know. And I got to say, in all the research I did, I just thought that was the coolest thing. You know, I mean, that John was up on what his sort of his disciples were doing, you know, because uh, both Edmonds and Lowe and Rockpile and, and also Graham Parker we're very much a throwback to that stripped down rock and roll of John's era. So I just thought it'd be so cool that he would, he would know that song and pick up on it. It was a, uh, all over the radio, I guess in 1979, it was on Edmund's album. I think it was on repeat when necessary, but, uh, I'm sure John was up on Nick Lowe and the thing that was going on, that group of artists squeezed too.
One of the nice things about reading the 1980 playlist book is that you dig out things that are, are not known as well or, or vignettes, whether it's um, that little bit of information in relation to Dave Edmonds and, and that track or, or, or our last song here, Liverpool Lou. I'm familiar with that song because of the scaffold version and um, uh, Mike McCartney was on the, the podcast talking about that and, and obviously really? Mike worked <laughs> with his brother Paul uh, for you know to produce that track and I think it was Paul's idea for the scaffold to record Liverpool and that became a hit but I didn't know that actually it was a favourite of John's as well yeah I didn't know that either I found an interview with Yoko I think it might have been our Desert Island Discs interview and one of the challenges of this book Jason was how to end it and does not have it has a sad ending so that was really a challenge and I had read about uh, Yoko said in that uh, Desert Island Discs show that John, when when Sean was young, he would sing a lullaby. She called it a lullaby, Liverpool Lou, uh, went to sing him to sleep at night. And so I just thought that was a touching way to end the book. It's quite a beautiful song. Not exactly a lullaby, more of a lover's lament, I would say. But I, I think you were talking about John being a little homesick for England. He apparently did have plans uh, to to go back for a family reunion, according to his half sister Julia, and also his aunt Mimi. It's actually he spoke to Aunt Mimi every week, and uh, he'd actually spoken to the day before he was killed. And they were talking about you know that he was going to come back at some point. And he talked in one of the interviews how you could from his apartment you could see the ships that were coming and going in the docks in New York, and he used to wonder, maybe they're going to Liverpool, you know, and maybe you don't have a romantic notion because he hadn't been in England in, in nine years. So I'm sure he, he missed it, but he, he would do little things to indicate he, he missed it, like he would wear his uh, old school tie from time to time. You can see pictures of him from 1980 where he's got that tie on, possibly on the double fantasy cover, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, he would wear his old school tie just to, I guess, because he was homesick a little bit. But yeah, uh, Liverpool, I just chose that because I thought it was a kind of a sweet note to end, end, end the book on. By the way, that McCart- that McGear album that he reco- recorded with Paul and Wings, is one of those, basically a Wings album, as I mentioned in the book, got some good stuff on there, you know? Got some, it's only really McCartney's all over the album. Yeah, it's, uh, it's better than some Wings albums. Uh. Yeah. But I think you're right, is kind of how to end that. And it's a, I recall listening to one of the Lennon box sets, and I'm not sure it was Beautiful Boy, but I think there might have been an audio clip of him talking to Sean. No matter what the, the mark of the man of John Lennon, which is just immense on the earth, he was the, yeah. the father of Julian. But Sean, who was still at such a young age, and just to, you know, to lose a father is just so tragic, just on a, a personal level. I mean, you know, we had a connection to him and we felt horrible about it. And uh, but it's nothing compared to the his loved ones. And uh, yeah, I mean, on all the other levels, but that's the most basic level where your father and a husband was murdered completely needlessly. I don't dwell on it in, in the, the book, but it, on the other hand, it's inescapable. And if what happened there didn't happen, it probably wouldn't have written this book. It's like uh, when you look back on 9-11, uh, at least here, you know, you sort of look back on the months before, the summer of 2011, 2001, things seemed to take on a new meaning in light of the tragedy that was going to come. Of course, he had, he had no idea about that. And uh, one of those terrible tragedies, better to celebrate the birthday than the, than the day he was killed. I mean, you'll be able to share 
your reflections and what you think you you learned looking at John Lennon's playlist uh, the final months or, or year of his life for me still listening to the British music scene seemed to come out but actually listening to new artists, new music, as well as some old favorites. Yeah, he was definitely turned on by, I mean, he had things I was surprised by. He had a jukebox. Not only did he have tons of Elvis records on the jukebox, he had lots of Bing Crosby records, uh, which you would not associate with John Lennon, but he loved Bing Crosby. Um, And I go into some of the songs that were his favorites, like Dream a Little Dream and uh, Whispering. But if you think about it, John got the title of, the Beatles' breakthrough song, Please Please Me, was inspired by Bing Crosby. So you know, this went way back where he would we listen to everything. He didn't discriminate. Oh, that's granny music or that's some parents' music or that's whatever. He, he would listen to it all and sort of incorporate it all. And it was a Bing Crosby song called Please that I guess John's mother used to sing around the house. Please listen to my please. And John loved the double meaning of the word please and uh, wrote, Please Please Me, which, of course, was that was the one, wasn't it? That was the breakthrough record uh, for the Beatles in the UK, and they kicked off uh, Beatlevania. But uh, he listened to uh, he listened to gospel. Uh, he listened to uh, ambient. There was a, a Wendy Carlos uh, record that he really liked called Sonic Seasonings. And if you listen to Double Fantasy, it's got a lot of these... Um, uh, audio vignettes, you might say, like at the end of uh, starting over, you hear an announcer come on and it's, uh, you know, it's, he's making a flight announcement in an airport. Other places you hear like people walking and uh, muffled discussion and things like that. So he loved all that stuff, uh, too. Just, I remember one interview and I couldn't find it to quote in the book, but they, they were playing word association with John and they said music and he said sound. And, you know, I think that he could, from that, I think he could, meant he could, you could take music or uh, meant any kind of sound. And of course, John did experiment with that type of thing on Revolution Number no. 9 and some of his early albums with Yoko, which is playing around with noise, noise and sound. But, um, yeah, so as I document in the book, though, uh, he's listening to funk. I mean, he loved the song uh, Let's Get Serious by Jermaine Jackson, which was a hit in the uh, spring of 1980 basically a Stevie Wonder production and an accepted name. You know, Stevie plays, wrote the song and plays all the instruments and even sings on it. He loved disco. Uh, He loved Donna Summer. Maybe people wouldn't be surprised by that, but as far back as 1975 on his Tomorrow Show interview, they asked him, uh, what what do you think of music today? What's going on? I love disco. Her only number one hit while he was alive was Whatever Gets You Through the Night. It's actually based on George McRae's uh, hit from 1974, Rock Your Baby, a huge disco song uh, out of Miami. So, yeah, the breadth of what he was listening to is just, uh, and and the musical curiosity, I I think, is one of the hints to his, his genius. Fantastic. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Tim, and, uh, get an insight into the music that, that John Lennon was listening to in his final year. Um, I wish you all the best uh, with the book. It's taught me a lot about what John was listening to in that period and a little bit of a, a new angle on on, on his life. So uh, thank you so much for that. Coming from you, that's high praise, Jason. I appreciate it very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, thank you so much. Oh, Liverpool, love. 
listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.